Well, thank you once again for your welcome, and it's good to see, uh, see you all. Uh, I know some of you and have met uh, a few of you over the last few years, but it's good to meet uh, the rest of you. This morning we, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15. Uh, and even if you have never picked up your Bible before in your life, uh, which I guess would be unlikely in a place like this, you would probably, you would probably have heard of this story. I'm going to put this perhaps in my back pocket, see if that helps. And uh, the title that I've been given is Lost and Found. Luke chapter 15 and starting at verse 1. Is it me? If instead of saying that, it said uh, people that you wouldn't want your children to hang around with, people that you wouldn't want your family necessarily to associate with, people that if your church leaders were hanging around with on a regular basis, you might have some questions for them at the AGM. You see, these are the kind of people that if Jesus was here today, I think that he would be hanging around with, and we would probably share some of the concerns that the Pharisees had in these verses. And so I think for me, if I was around at Jesus' time, I'd be siding with the Pharisees just now. I'm going to be honest. I, I wish I, I wouldn't, but I think, to be honest, I, I probably would, knowing me. <coughs> then Jesus told this parable. Again, notice that this is a singular use of the word parable. These aren't three separate parables. These are one parables told over three acts. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need not repent. In verse 4, notice that this shepherd doesn't take a business-like approach to finding his sheep. He doesn't calculate the value of one sheep, work out the value of his hourly rate, and say, I will work until uh, my hourly rate uh, equals the value of the sheep. And if I haven't found it in that time, it's not really worth my while searching any longer because 
that's, the sheep isn't that valuable uh, in monetary terms. Notice that that's not the approach he takes. He just says, I'm going to set off until I find it. The cost of finding the sheep is almost irrelevant to him. He's going he's to pay whatever it costs to find this sheep. And the reason he's going to do that is because he's a shepherd. That sheep belongs to him. It's his sheep, and he's going to go and find it. And in this Act 1, we'll look at lost and found. Uh, so the sheep got lost, and I suppose it wasn't really any different to any other sheep or sheep today. They have a natural propensity to wander off uh, and get lost. The sheep can also take no credit for being found. The shepherd searched until he found it, and the sheep was just found. And then the shepherd carried it home, and they celebrated, or the shepherd and his friends celebrated. And that's how Jesus concludes Act 1. You see, Jesus informs the Pharisees, this is how God reacts when a single sinner repents, and there is great joy And he says it's an occasion for a celebration. Then he moves on into Act 2. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls for her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Uh, My lost sheep? I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So in Act 2, the coins that we have mentioned here were most likely part of a dowry that, uh, that a man would give to a woman when he wanted to marry her. They were probably woven together to make a, a kind of jewellery, perhaps a headset. So when we read this story, don't necessarily think lost coin Think something like lost engagement ring, lost wedding ring, something that has a value beyond the monetary value of the jewellery, something that can't really be replaced you know, just with another ring. It's, it's that ring that her fiancé gave her when he said, I want to marry. It's that wedding ring that when uh, they exchange vows at the altar that he gave to her, it has a value that she can't really explain, a value that goes beyond just sheer money. And so she's going to search diligently until she finds it because it's really, really important to her. So lost and found in Act 2. Unlike the sheep, the coin doesn't have the ability to wander off. It's an inanimate object. It just, it's just lost. And neither does it have any ability within itself to change its situation. In effect, this coin is dead. It has no ability to change its circumstances whatsoever. It requires the woman to search for it, and it requires the woman to find it. And then Jesus concludes Act 2 like this. In the same way, I'll tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And as we move into Act 3, let's notice that Jesus begins to turn up the heat The other acts, acts one and two, they would understand. But act three, they would feel. They would feel it. Jesus aims this act at the heart. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. 
The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. In effect, what he's saying here is, I wish you were dead. I value your stuff more than I value my relationship with you. And the thing that strikes me about this statement is his sense of entitlement. Give me the things that are due to me. Give me, give me the things that I, I'm going to get, that I, I have owing to me. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Perhaps we could read that uh, in a way that was, he began to realise his need. Perhaps up until this point, he's never realised before just how much he needs his father, just how much he needs to be back at home. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, the inference here is that until this point in the story, this younger son has not been in his right state of mind. He's not been, uh, his senses haven't been with him. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food enough to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will go out and go back to my father and say to him, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Lost and found in in Act 3 so far. Unlike the sheep or the coin, the younger son is lost because he intentionally and willfully wandered away from the father. He intentionally left his father. And only in Act 3 does the, the thing that was lost have any kind of ability to change their circumstances. Now, the son doesn't have a starring role here, but he does have an important one. The overwhelming emphasis is on the searcher in this entire parable. But the role of the lost in Act 3 is not ignored. And being found in Act 3 begins with him coming to his senses. He realises that this situation that he's in, this state of depravity, this state of homelessness, this state of dire need, would never have happened if he had never left his father. And the other thing in being found is that he realizes his complete unworthiness. At the beginning of this story, he has an attitude of entitlement. Give me the things that are due to me. Give me my share of the inheritance. 
But now, he has a different attitude. He has an attitude that realises everything that he has ever had has come from the Father. The body that he's been given, the skills, the talents, what he likes, what he pleases, that's all come from the Father. The money that he went to the far country with, that's all come from the Father. It wasn't something that he'd earned. He was unworthy of it. So he decides to return home because there is a chance that this father may actually show him some kindness. And he thinks probably best case scenario, I go home and he doesn't kill me. He, he just lets me be one of his hired servants. He lets me work for him. Perhaps he was even thinking at the back of his mind, maybe one day I'll save up enough money to pay him back. Who knows? And then we come to perhaps the most crucial exchange in understanding this parable. The part where the father and the son are reunited. That first instance uh, of dialogue when he comes home. Uh, that first instance of them coming together. But while, while the father saw him, uh, sorry, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. In an instant, this son knows that he is loved and accepted. No matter what journey lies behind him, no matter what stories, no matter what actions, no matter what he has done, this son knows in an instant that he is loved and accepted. Through his... In through his extravagant actions, the father lets him know that he is welcome home. He's welcome home. And the son begins his rehearsed apology. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But for whatever reason here, he only gets halfway through his rehearsed apology. He doesn't go on to the bit about, make me one of your hired servants. Maybe... He realized in that moment when the father runs out and greets him, throws his arms around him and kisses him. Maybe he knows in that moment, it's not, I, I don't need to do that. That's not what happened here. Maybe the father cuts him off. Maybe he's about to go into it. And the father just then bursts in with the next thing. Quick, servants, bring all the things. Uh, bring the robe, bring the sandals, bring the ring for his finger. And I suppose in a way it doesn't really matter why he cuts off partway through. But it is important, I think, that he cuts off part way through. You see, he said the bit that he needed to say. Father, I have sinned and I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. That's all he needs to say. That's all the father needs to hear. And then the father's response is beyond, is beyond his wildest dreams. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals for his feet. You see, after the son has said this, the father restores him back into the family upon his confession of unworthiness. And I think the order of this sequence is really important. The son is shown that he is loved and accepted before he even says a word. Before he can get a word out of his mouth, the father sees him, runs down the street, throws his arms around him. But he isn't restored back into the family 
until he's confessed his unworthiness. It's only after he's confessed his unworthiness that he's described as found. That doesn't happen beforehand. And people who realize that they are lost and unworthy, but come in repentance to the Father, are restored to the Father's family. And I think this is the point on which the parable hinges. This is the pivotal moment in this whole chapter. You see, Jesus then flips the story around. He puts a twist in the tale. If this was a movie, we would expect the uh, screen to go blank, the credits to roll, uh, we all go home. But it's kind of like one of those false endings. The screen goes blank, you begin to get up out of your seat, and then the next scene starts, and you're like, what? What's going on? Uh, so you sit back down. And, and Jesus almost uh, kind of ruins his punchline, perhaps. He, he then carries on telling the story. Meanwhile, the, el- the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this son of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So this is the twist at the end of the story. So we will look at lost and found in the twist. The older brother is on his way home from work and learns about the events of the day. And his response is to become angry. He refuses to go in to celebrate with his family. <coughs> and that really is a, is a social statement that I think everybody would have probably understood. Perhaps you've had that experience where you've walked into someone's house and it's clear that only moments before you walked through the door there was an argument, probably a raging argument going on. You can tell because the, uh, the posture of the people in the room is, is, is quite like this and it's quite tense and, and you're almost sort of, uh, you know, you could really cut the tension with a knife. We've probably all walked into those awkward situations and we wish, for whatever reason, we'd had a puncture and we couldn't make it to our destination. See, the son socially here makes a huge statement that all the people inside would have understood loud and clear. He's saying, I'm not going to be anything to do with what's going on in there. That is not my brother. And then the father goes out to meet him. For the second time that day, the father leaves his house to go out to one of his sons. For the second time that day, the father leaves his house to meet one of his sons where they are. And he pleads with him. But this son won't have it. He won't wear it. And in verses 29 to 30, he begins to give vent to his anger. Anger is a, 
curious thing. Uh, and I suppose in church we uh, may have been taught mixed things about anger. I now have a, uh, a role, um, I didn't mention this earlier, uh, in school. On a Wednesday morning I do pastoral care at our local high school. And probably 90, 95% of the kids that I end up seeing, anger will come up at some point. Anger will come up at some point. And to be honest, we're never really properly told how to think about anger, how to deal with it. And so one of the first things I do is I run through with them. Um, why, why do you get angry? Uh, do you understand anger? Do you, do you understand what it's there for? Do you understand what it's motivating you to do? And most of the time they go, I don't know, I just know I get angry and bad things happen. And so we begin to work through the process of, of anger. And so I explain to them, well, we, we feel anger when we come across something that we perceive is unfair or wrong, something that's immoral. And so the question that we have here in this part of the text is, what, what is making this son angry? Why is he experiencing anger? What is he perceiving as unfair or immoral? So we can say, well, has the father here done anything immoral? No, he hasn't done anything immoral. In fact, he's, he's gone above and beyond even what culture says he should do. So it's not immoral, so we can rule that out. So is it unfair? Well, let's, let's have a look. See, I think this older son feels it's unfair because this kind of exuberant celebration should be reserved for people like him. People who have slaved away for many years. People who have earned that kind of celebration should enjoy that celebration. In other words, the older brother says something like this. This son of yours is not worthy to be treated like this. But I am. I'm worthy to be treated like that. And you don't treat me like that. And I find it interesting that he shows exactly the same attitude that the younger brother showed at the beginning of the story. That same entitled attitude of give me what's mine. Give me what is owed to me. He shows exactly the same attitude here. But again, the response of the father is just astounding. In verse 31 where he says, My son, that's the most tender, the most gentle, most affectionate way that he could have greeted his son at that time. It's the most affectionate address that he could ever give to a son. And essentially the father says this, My son, my dear, dear son, you misunderstand I have freely offered you all that you have been slaving for this whole time. It's been freely on offer. You could have had it at any time you wanted. And the thing that I wanted most wasn't for you to be slaving away at the family business. The thing I wanted most was to have a relationship with you, to enjoy the relationship that a father and a son should enjoy. Above everything else, that's really what I wanted here. You see, here, the older son reveals to us a fourth kind of lostness. And that's this, a refusal to accept 
that he is lost at all. He refuses to accept that he is lost at all. You see, Jesus was telling this story to a group of people who thought that they were worthy. People who didn't require a saviour. Sure, everybody else around about them, they needed saving, they needed help. But the group he was telling the story to, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they didn't need saving because they were all right in their own eyes. And Jesus, with tenderness, with all the tenderness of the Father, when he says, my dear, dear son, tells them, no, no, you you do need a saviour. You do need me. And I think it's interesting. So often, and this is such a common story, we've probably all heard it preached a multitude of times. So often, the younger son seems to get all the grace. And the older son, the religious one, is condemned. And and if we're not careful, I think we preachers can can end up beating up the congregation. We We can end up laying a load of guilt where Jesus doesn't lay up guilt in this story. To the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, he doesn't come out in this occasion and blast them for their their ignorance, their blindness. He simply invites them. Come. Come on in. Join the celebration. Join my family. Last night, um, like I said, I was at a youth event and my sister was leading the worship and I didn't know what she was going to do. And partway through the singing, she just says, okay, we're just going to read uh, from Ephesians. And she read from Ephesians uh, chapter 2, but in the message. And, and I was really blown away by how this fitted in with this talk this morning. So I thought that we would end this morning by reading that same passage of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Uh, and like I say, it's from the message, so you might just want to listen along. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old, stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing. When we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did this all on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in the company with Jesus, our Messiah. When Jesus ends his story, he ends it on a cliffhanger. He simply says that we had to be glad, we had to celebrate that this child of mine was dead uh, and now is alive, was lost and is found. And there he ends it. We don't ever know what happened to that older son. We don't know if he went in or if he stormed off and never was seen again. And I think Jesus leaves it open so that every person who, hear, who heard it then and every person who hears it now can end the story for themselves. You see, you and I, we have a, a choice, I suppose. We can either freely accept 
what Jesus is offering to us. We can freely accept the invitation to join his family because he has paid what we could not pay. He, the worthy one, took the place of us, the unworthy. And we can either freely accept that or we can throw it back in his face and say, actually, I don't need it. I don't need your invitation. I don't need a savior. I just don't need you. I can do it all myself. I'm not interested in what you've got to offer. You see, we can either be entitled or we can realize and recognize our unworthiness. And that's the challenge for me as I've looked at these passages and read these verses. In my daily walk, am I going to to walk with a, a sense of my unworthiness? Am I going to remember that I am unworthy of everything that Jesus freely offers? Am I going to repent of the times where I see entitlement creeping in to my spiritual life? Am I going to say, hang on a second, that prayer there, I began to point out some of the things that I've done and said, remember all these things that I've done. I think actually now, Lord, you ought to probably do some of the things I'm asking for. When I look at other people and say, that kid in the youth group, he's such a pain. Like, everything about him just seems to irritate me beyond words. Perhaps it'd be better if he didn't come. When I see that in me, am I going to repent of that? Am I going to walk in remembering my unworthiness? Or am I going to go with entitlement that actually I earned some of this? That's the challenge for me, and I think that's the challenge for you as well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the richness of it, the way that it explains your great love for us in spite of everything that we've done. Father, thank you that we don't have to be worthy because you are worthy. And Father, today may we freely walk in that invitation to join your family. May we not feel the need to work for it, to earn it. But Father, may we just enjoy being in your presence. Enjoy your love for us. And in enjoying it and in understanding it, Father, then be prepared to do whatever you ask us to do because you love us. And we ask this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.